Welcome to Anchored Radio. We're here, we're anchored by the Word of God. My name is Peter, and I'll be your host for tonight. Now, just as a short note, moving forward starting next week, we will have a secondary co-host, uh, a lovely person who I look forward to working with very closely. But for now, it'll just be me. So the topic I wanted to talk about in this first episode was the Protestant Reformation and seeing how today, October 31st, is the 503rd anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, I thought it might be fun to talk about it, why I'm Protestant as opposed to being Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, um, and some interesting tidbits alongside with that. But first, I like to do everything anchored by the Word of God, hence the title of the show. So the scripture that comes to mind when I'm thinking about Protestantism and the Reformation as a whole is Jude, please don't ask what chapter, Verse 3 and 4, and they read here, according to the New American Standard Bible, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into indecent behavior and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, not to take things out of context, I think it's important to understand why Jude might be writing something like this. And even though he is earnest and eager to talk about the common salvation that he shares with fellow saints, um, the riches in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, um, the joy that comes from being filled by the Spirit and things like that. It's almost as if he was aware that we were going to be facing enemies both from within and without. Um, those people who might be adverse to the gospel, who might be antagonistic to the good news, um, or who might try to distort it into something that it was never meant to be. And so for us to know that an apostle writing to the church of all time to contend earnestly for the faith, means that it's not okay for us to simply let bygones be bygones in the sake of peace, ultimately sacrificing truth for that peace. Truth needs to be the most important thing, right? According to Jesus' own words, he came to testify to the truth. Well, then one might ask, what is truth? Truth as defined by the scriptures is every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And I think that's important for us to focus on in terms of why the Protestant Reformation was such an important and integral piece of history. Without getting too far into the detail, which I generally and genuinely look forward to going into much later in future episodes, I just wanted to give a quick flyby overview of a couple of things. So when Martin Luther goes and he realizes all of the predecessors that have come before him, whether that be uh, John Huss or Tyndale or Wycliffe, or any of those contemporaries that he had, um, some of which were actually killed for having very even similar views as himself. When he goes and he nails his 95 Theses to the front door of the Wittenberg Church, it was not an act of rebellion. It was more so an act of questions that he felt the church had very, um, either eagerly or maybe not even fully aware of it, had sort of abandoned in sake of certain traditions that they had. And so the purpose of him going and doing such a dramatic, what we would call dramatic uh, symbol of posting basically a list of questions on the door of the church was 
exactly to discuss those questions and 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 bring certain things that he saw as unbiblical to the forefront of the conversation and have a have an honest dialogue with it and sort of see if there could be some way of reforming and getting back and getting closer to how the apostles handed down the faith from Christ himself. And so he goes on trial and everyone knows, well, not maybe not everybody, but a large portion might know his famous quote, here I stand, I can do no other, without realizing the context of maybe why he would say such a bold statement that way and why he would even have to flee. So up to that point, it was illegal to have a English translation of the Bible. Those who tried, like Tyndale and Wycliffe, were persecuted heavily and or put to death for even daring to question whether or not the Bible should be translated into the common language. And so along those lines, here comes this guy, Martin Luther, who is standing before his tribunal. And this is not a short thing. This didn't happen in like a week or two. This actually took several years, several different appearances in court. And finally, when they told him, listen, you need to recant. You need to take back what you said about what the church is doing in terms of um, indulgences and purgatory and other issues. This is what the church believes. This is what the church is teaching. And you cannot teach contrary. And they told him, listen, if you don't take back what you said, we're going to kill you for it as a heretic. And that's the context of him saying, here I stand, I can, I can do no other. Because it was his belief, along with many others, that it was more important to have a biblical understanding of how the church is to operate, how the life of a believer is to operate, than it is to simply have conformity. Or rather, as Dr. White puts it, he would rather have truth over certainty. What does that mean? Does it necessarily entail that holding to something that's true means that you're on shaky ground? Well, no, not actually. It means the exact opposite. It means those who love Christ should be seeking after the truth of his word at all, at all times, at all points. And we shouldn't become comfortable or complacent in traditions that we have and not question these things and just sort of take them at face value without digging into why they're there, who originated them, should we continue to practice them in light of what the Bible teaches. None of us are perfect. And I'm not claiming that all of us, or that any of us really, have 100% figured out everything about God. It, that's impossible, right? We're, we're dealing with the infinite being, the I am that I am. And therefore, there's going to be limitations on how much we can comprehend. We're, fail we're, we're creatures that make mistakes. But it should be our goal, if we serve such a infinite, loving, merciful, just, righteous God, and a truthful God, then we should seek truth as he is truth. So when I say something like, we need to have truth and not certainty, what I mean to say is this. If we're stuck in a particular mindset or tradition that we have, and we're not going to question, we're not going to examine it in light of the scriptures and really put it under the, uh, the microscope or put it in the dock if you were in a courtroom situation, then we're giving up truth. 
because what we may have might be well-intended, but it may not be biblically true. There's tons of things just personally that I've seen through many different churches, not in one particular denomination, that I would call out as being not living in light of biblical truth, but that doesn't mean I'm condemning those who do it. I'm just trying to have a conversation about this is something that I'm noticing. Can we talk about it? Can we get to the word? And can we do this with love and understanding that none of us are perfect? But if there's an aspect that we can improve on, should we not want to improve on that in light of honoring God? And so coming back to the scripture verse that I read in Jude, when Jude is writing, he says, Beloved, I was, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary, or I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. So there has been this sort of idea or mindset within certain circles that I've, I've come across. Again, this is not a general statement for everybody. This is just issues that I've seen repeated on a case-by-case situation. Now, this idea that as Christians, we're not to be confrontational in terms of defending what we what we know to be biblically true right we're not supposed to get into every fight we're not supposed to get into every battle over every minor quibble versus um, something that's more important but when those important issues come up we need to be able to say accurately and and foundationally strong we stand on what god has said so when we're dealing with issues of salvation that's a absolute must contend for an absolute must contend for because if, some, if we're wrong about how a person is saved, what, a person, what is required of a person to be saved, then it opens up so many more issues down the line. If we're dealing with the deity of Christ, that's a contending for the faith kind of issue. Because if we're wrong about who Christ is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if, if, if Christ has not risen from the dead, then we are most to be pitied amongst all of men. Why? Because we're putting our hope and trust in something that ultimately has already failed. I don't know why I cracked there. Has already failed. When we're dealing with the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, that is a contend for the faith issue. Because if we're wrong about who God is and how God has revealed himself, then we are blaspheming against the one who has made all things and will be held accountable for what we said. And so this is, a, this is certain issues, certain topics that are you have to be ready to fight and defend for this. The truth is powerful. But if God himself acted and laid down his life for the defense of the truth, should we not be ready to do the same? Now, not again, not every issue is a contend for the faith. If someone says, you know, I think that there's a premillennial tribulation rapture eschatology, Versus someone says, well, I'm a post-mill eschatology, or I'm an amill eschatology. Those necess- aren't necessarily contend for the faith kind of issues. Those are in-house, in-church discussions among saints using scripture and using good hermeneutic and good exegetical practice. And I would also argue good understanding of history. But those can be done in-house and in love and in, in peace where we can say this is what the scripture says and this is what I've seen throughout history and this is why I think the way that I do as opposed to, well, this is the church I grew up in and this is what they taught and this is what I'm holding on to because I don't even know about other scriptures that may put this in a better context. 
but I don't want to get too far off the issue of the Protestant Reformation. Um, so again, doing a quick flyby, we're going to go much more in detail on this next week and in the week after that, where we'll be able to give um, in-depth history, um, quotes, uh, some research done by polls and understanding um, the differences between Roman Catholicism, Eastern, Ortho Eastern Orthodox, and Protestantism. But why am I Protestant is really the question that I want to get to now. The reason why I'm Protestant is because when reading the scriptures, when reading the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation, there are key fundamental truths that have jumped off of the page for me. One of the most important ones is a man or a woman is saved from sin, from the wrath of God, from eternal condemnation from God, by having faith in the Messiah who is Jesus Christ. That is what makes me a Protestant because I know that I am saved through faith, through trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and for the reconciliation of me and God. Now, that, that can be a loaded statement sometimes, so I kind of want to unpack that a little bit. When Paul makes his arguments in the book of Romans, which just happens to be my favorite book, he says a couple of interesting things. In Romans chapter 4, he goes into great detail about how was Abraham justified before God. Was it before the giving of the law, or was it after the giving of the law? Well, if you know your history, then you will remember this. Abraham was the one who was called by God in the book of Genesis out of the land of Ur and into the land of Canaan. And God made covenant with Abram, changing his name from Abram to Abraham. And he made him an oath. He made him a promise. He said, I'll give you land. I'll give you descendants. And I'll bless you and you will be able to bless all the nations through the blessing that comes through you. So Abraham hears this. He understands who God is. He understands that this is not just some other deity that he's been worshiping for how many years, but this is the one unique creator God, the one who is before all things and when all things have passed away will still be. And so in Romans 4, uh, chapter 4, uh, Paul says this starting in uh, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? Paul is writing and addressing a Jewish audience in this topic because they are technically the offspring by the flesh from Abraham. And so he goes, continues in verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? say Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one, who's now to the one who works... The wages are not credited as favor, but as what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are, have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And so Abraham is believing on God and that is credited to him as righteousness apart from works. There is nothing that Abraham could have done to earn God's favor towards him. And there's nothing that you and I could do that would ever gain God's 
favor. So Paul makes his argument very clear here. It is by faith in the one who justifies the ungodly. That is what credits us as righteous. And so the whole purpose of the Protestant Reformation was this issue. Primarily, in my opinion, it was this issue of faith. How is a person justified before God? Now, I may not be the most well-versed in Roman Catholic theology or their teachings, but one thing that I'm fairly familiar with is the idea that you're not saved through faith alone, really, but you're saved through the church. You're saved through obeying the sacraments. You're saved through being a member of the church, and therefore you don't have an imputed or a credited righteousness that washes you clean and counts you before God as an innocent person through the work of Christ. You have infused righteousness. So you're given a, a booster shot to put you in a better position, but you need to keep certain commands, you need to keep certain sacraments, and you need to keep coming to the church and being a member of the church in order to balance out the scales a bit. Now, I may be oversimplifying, I may be overjustifying, I'll take that. And we can go far more in depth with this in future episodes where we'll actually have a lot of more research done. This is just an introduction to get a framework going. So I'm not claiming here to be an exhaustive resource. But that was the separation that Martin Luther and many other contemporaries that he had saw as an issue in the church. The church is saying one thing about how a person is found righteous or justified or, or, or saved from their sin and the Bible is saying no 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 it is faith alone in the one who justifies the ungodly that is what classifies a person as made righteous not just appearing righteous not just having a boost of righteousness that they can lose but they are made righteous before a holy God by the finished work of the cross hence why we have our five solas um, I'm not gonna particularly say them in Latin right now but I'll give them in English we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through the scriptures alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. That's what it means to be Protestant, to hold on to these biblical pillars. I am saved through grace, I am saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, as revealed in the scriptures for the purposes and glorification of God, who is the one who justifies the ungodly and gets all of the glory. All of the righteousness, all of the praise goes to God himself, not to me and not to you. And unfortunately, I've seen many times this issue coming up, especially with people in my age demographic. I am a young person. I'm in my early 20s. And there seems to be this overwhelming boom of people who grew up in Protestant churches. And I'm going to use for this for the purposes of my, my statements, Protestant meaning a church that is not Roman Catholic and a church that's not Eastern Orthodox. So there you'll have your Presbyterians, your Pentecostals, your Lutherans, uh, and any, th any color in between for that. Those, those churches that they break off on certain differences in practicing doctrine, but can still hold to the fundamental truths of the scriptures, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, um, and things like that. And so for, for me, from my perspective and my experience, I have seen plenty of young people who grew up in Protestant churches and they were taught Protestant understanding of the scriptures and then they kind of grow up and they're thinking to themselves, wait a second, why, why, what's wrong with 
Roman Catholicism? Why are people so up in arms all the time? Or what, what, what's the issue? They, they say they love Jesus. I say I love Jesus. Isn't that enough? You know, and, and so there's been this big push for ecumenicalism and getting together with, with, with other groups that love or claim to love who Jesus is, what he's done. But then when you start to dissect a couple of things, when you start to really start to put these things under the microscope, you start to realize there's a fundamental difference in the language that's used. We're using the same words, but they may not have the same meaning. And I think that's the key distinction for, that we need to make. There are tons of groups all throughout history that have claimed to love the Jesus of the Bible and then have taken him and twisted and distorted and, and turned him into somebody who he's not. And so they claim to love God, but they didn't love God. And the, why I can say that is because fundamentally they did not accept what God said about himself and what God has revealed about himself in the person and work of Christ. And so it's important to have this discussion, not again to have hate, not to have anger, not to have a sense of holier than thou, but to be able to prepare ourselves to have these kinds of conversations with people who we know and who we love and we want to see them have the understand we want to see them have the relationship the understanding and the blessing that comes from knowing that I am saved through grace by grace through faith in Christ that is what is important and understanding fundamentally who Jesus is as revealed in scripture is going to be the ultimate key to that so right now we're talking about the Protestant Reformation but moving forward we're going to have a wide range range <laughs> wide range of topics doing everything from church history to New Testament reliability um, to a little bit of word study and, and, and Koine Greek and, under, and diving into the scriptures and pulling out the intended meaning that the writers, the authors had for us as a church today and all throughout history. Um, really, and also maybe even getting into some uh, apologetics work and, and how to defend the faith from its opponents uh, from the secular community, from the atheistic community, from maybe the agnostic community, um, as well as defending it from even some within the church who are holding on to what I think might be um, really maybe not tested traditions that are very close to people's hearts, very close to people's chests, uh, but just because they're close doesn't mean they're true. And that's the whole point of having truth, being a seeker after truth of the word of God, God's truth rather than having certainty or, or comfortability in what I have already and not looking for more in the context of what does the scripture say about this thing that I'm holding so close and dear to myself. So with that, I want to part ways. Uh, this has been definitely a lot of fun. Um, it's a little bit of a shorter episode. Moving forward, we'll also probably have a little bit longer, maybe like 45 minutes um, conversations about topics that we are, you know, in, are press on our hearts and that we feel like we want to talk about um so for now we're going to cut it short but i just want to say thank you for joining thank you for listening uh, i do appreciate that if you would mind letting your friends know letting your family know that there's this awesome new podcast called anchor radio or anchored radio because i'm gonna not hear the end of it if i get it wrong it's anchored radio um thank you all for listening may god bless you may god be with you um have a great night